Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 39. We've had two episodes in a row with guests, which is rare for this podcast, and now I'm back with a regular solo episode. I enjoy this time that I get to spend thinking about your questions, so I want to start today by telling you all how much I appreciate that you take time out of your day to hang out with me. I truly appreciate your time, and I try to do my best to bring you dense episodes worthy of your time and attention that are ad-free and distraction-free. Part of the reason I do solo episodes is to be able to control the narrative and make sure I am bringing you a high concentration of information per episode. But I also personally listen and enjoy interview podcasts, so I know that it can be enjoyable to hear other voices as well. As many of you know, we've started doing live hangouts after the episodes on Discord. This is part of the Patreon membership. To learn more, check out the show notes. Anyway, about a week after the podcast comes out, I get on Discord and get to hear from listeners, and we create our own kind of podcast after the podcast together. These are meant to be informal, and I don't prepare anything in advance. However, Despite the casual nature of the live hangouts, as you'll see, we still get pretty complex pretty quickly. In the most recent gathering, I had Felipe, Jose, and Lucas from episode 38 on the discussion so that listeners of the podcast could ask them questions directly. A few things stuck out to me from that conversation, and I want to share them here because what started as a fun hangout turned out to provide a key insight for coffee producers. If you listen to episode 38, you'll know Felipe is a curious guy and truly enjoys experimenting with his coffee. He is a certain kind of coffee producer. I consider him, or I put him in a category of unicorns like Enrique Lopez of Finca Chelin in Mexico, or Emilio Lopez from 4M in El Salvador, or Luis Saldana from Fanzenda, California in Brazil. When we consider all of the coffee producers in the world, they are the exception, not the rule. In episode 38, we talked about Felipe's kombucha processed coffee, a non-traditional way to process coffee, especially in Latin America. And then when we got on the Discord session, he started by telling us that he did a fermentation adding ripe mango fruit to the fermenting coffee tank. He was the first to say that adding mango to a coffee fermentation tank doesn't result in the coffee having a mango flavor. I'm going to say this again for the folks in the back. Adding whole fruit to a coffee tank doesn't transfer the flavor of that fruit into the coffee. So during this discussion, another patron asked him, okay, but if adding mango doesn't make it taste like mango, why do it? What does it taste like? And it was hard for Felipe to point out a singular attribute, but he said it made the coffee really complex. It was a positive result. He liked it. His client liked it. But let's back up for a moment. You've probably tasted mango notes in your coffee before, and if you haven't, trust me, it can happen. Sometimes a cup of coffee can taste like one of those fruit cup snacks you'd get in your lunch as a kid with like peaches and maraschino cherries in like little syrup cups and add those little like plastic tear off top. Anyway, many flavor descriptors are not made up by coffee snobs or marketing. Scientists can measure these flavors in the coffee. If you taste mango flavor in your coffee, science can back you up. Yes, it's possible, and we can measure it. Coffee can taste like mango, and a lot of other things. 
If you're a new listener to the podcast and this interests you, I recommend you go back to episode 15 where we talk deeply about how this happens. In that episode, I talk about important research where scientists have identified the chemical components of jasmine and peaches and pineapple and banana and can trace them back to the microbes that produce them. As part of your Patreon membership, you can download the original research paper to see the full table with like 100 descriptors and their chemical precursors. But because not everyone has the time and patience to read scientific papers, I will tell you that mango flavor is attributed to beta-myrcene. Beta-myrcene is an abundant monoterpene. This compound has been identified in the coffee fermentation and also in roasted coffee. This means that scientists know that this compound was made in the fermentation stage and that it survives the intense heat of roasting. If it only showed up in the roasted coffee and not in the green fermented coffee, then we could assume that it was synthesized during roasting from other precursors. But that's not the case with many of these fruity descriptors. They are found in the fermented green coffee and they can also be found in roasted coffee. Scientists have also connected yeasts like Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Picchia as microbes that produce terpenes. So mango-flavored coffee doesn't happen from putting mangoes in a coffee tank. It comes from having yeast like Saccharomyces and Picchia and a glucose source to produce a compound that tastes like mango. The other part that I find interesting is that this is not necessarily cutting-edge coffee science. We've known this for a long time. Research uh, this particular research that I'm citing by Hernandez Espinosa Fernandez Gonzalez dates back to 2003. That means it's been 18 years that they've been working on this and that we've known this. And now I'm going to quote from the paper and share with you what they found. It says, The terpenes formed during the coffee mutilage removal process, and these include beta-citron-elol, linalool, duraniol, and alpha-terpeniol, originate from glycoside precursors through yeast beta-glycoside enzymes. In addition, some yeast species found in coffee fermentation, for example, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, Torulospora delbrechii, and Hansenia spora uvarum, can produce terpene derivatives through the mevalonic acid pathway. End of quote. This citation is from 2005, so perhaps it took a few more years to identify the mechanism of how this happens, even though scientists already knew that it did. Then, in 2013, Silva et al. showed that linalool produced by coffee-associated Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Picchia yeast can be detected in the beans after the roasting process. So the bottom line is that various studies have shown that microbial-derived metabolites can diffuse into seeds and remain after the roasting process. And these microbially-derived metabolites include esters, higher alcohols, aldehydes, ketones, and terpenoids. And maybe there's some flavors that you think only come from roasting. I mean, I did. For example, butterscotch. I have often had coffees that taste like the Werther's butterscotch candies and I thought that was purely a roast-related flavor. But butterscotch flavor has been detected in the fermentation. The chemical that tastes and smells like butterscotch is 1-hydroxy-2-butanone. It's a ketone. Scientists have also identified a yeast with the romantic name of Yarrowia lipolytica NCYC2904 that synthesizes butanone. This challenges the traditional conventional thinking that all of the flavor came from roasting. 
This is important because we used to use the logic that if you drink green beans, they taste like nothing. But if you roast them and then drink them, it's a delicious, delicious beverage. So there must be something in the roasting and only the roasting that makes them taste good. And this is the reasoning behind the business of buying commodity green coffee. Green coffee seeds were originally seen as kind of inert. You just had to buy them from wherever they were cheapest. So for example, say you normally buy Guatemalan coffee for $2 a pound, but then Guatemala has a terrible crop due to climate change and the farmers lose 30% of their yield. So the supply is reduced and the price goes up. Suddenly, the price is raised to $2.50, which Okay, maybe 50 cents doesn't seem like a lot, but suddenly your costs as a buyer have gone up by 25%. 25% is a significant increase. The green coffee is just a raw material, so you exchange it for a cheaper option. You see that you can get green coffee for $2 per pound from Honduras or Vietnam, so you just buy that. You have the luxury of buying only on price because you believe the quality comes from the roasting step. The previous example is actually a very unrealistic example. What's more likely to happen is that Guatemala has had a bad year, producers have 30% less yield, and the supply is significantly less, but since the farmers are not the ones who set the prices, that's decided by the New York Stock Exchange or something, then they will most likely keep getting paid the same price despite the changing conditions and then go into a spiral of debt. But this is not an episode about coffee economics, so let's put that aside for a moment and go back to talking about the interchangeability of commodity coffee. Let's give another example. Let's say you're a carpenter and someone ordered a table from you. You personally like to work with redwood, so you make them a table from that and you sell it at a price you think is okay. But now you get an order for 40 tables for a restaurant and the person wants a volume discount. They are buying more, so they want to pay less per table. Suddenly, you realize it's too expensive to use redwood for all those tables, so maybe you buy pine instead. The most important concern for the restaurant is to have 40 tables. So if you switch out cedar or redwood for pine, it's okay because both will make you a table. The value, the craft, is not in the wood you use, the raw material. It is in the craftsman, the person who turns the wood into a table. I think this is how many first and second wave roasters thought about green coffee, as the inert raw material that the craftsman, the roaster, turned into the final product. So you could switch out origins and buy whatever happens to be cheaper because you don't really think it affects the final product because you are the artist. The green coffee is just the paint you use to paint your masterpiece. I know with specialty, this paradigm is changing. We know that different regions have different flavors. We appreciate origin. In fact, that's how we talk about specialty coffee, all about origin, where it was grown, how it was grown, was it organic. Now we even care about varieties. We want geisha and katura and bourbon and pacamara. And this is all well and good. But while I believe we are headed in a better direction, I still feel like many miss an important opportunity in this paradigm shift. I think many even in specialty, fail to see the producer as an artist as well. We value nature and climate and origin, and we value roasting transformation and brewing. And too frequently, the producer is systematically left out of the equation. In fact, many in specialty believe it is the producer's job to get out of the way, to show the transparency of what nature intended for the coffee. 
Now, this sounds romantic, but what it implies is that we believe, consciously or unconsciously, that copy producers should be seen and not heard. For many in specialty, we believe a producer has done a good job when he has not left a mark on their copy. They are successful only when the coffee is a transparent expression of the land. For many in specialty, a coffee producer is successful when they quietly fade into the background. And what kind of bullshit empowerment is that? I think that's the message many coffee producers wrestle with. We tell them that specialty coffee is different from commodity because now they have a role. Now we care about how the coffee was produced. But their role is largely to not steal the show from variety and climate. It's like we're letting them into the meeting, but telling them to stand quietly in the corner and not say anything. And then we congratulate ourselves for being progressive and inclusive. This is why I made the terroir series. Not to say that I don't believe in terroir as a concept, which is surprisingly how many people think that's, that's the takeaway. Um, but that wasn't the point at all. The reason I made that episode was to show how the concept of terroir simultaneously makes us feel we value coffee more while relegating coffee producers to silent partners. And you know who refuses to be a silent partner? Felipe. And this is why I admire him so much. And maybe you think I'm being dramatic. Maybe these episodes are prone to drama. But before you dismiss these ramblings, I want to talk about a term I've been hearing that I really disagree with. Adulterated coffee. There's a part of the industry, a vocal part, who would like coffees labeled as doctored or infused if they have some non-coffee element as part of processing. The reason behind this call for transparency from coffee producers is said to stem from keeping integrity in coffee competitions. There's that word again, transparency. And it most often seems to be leveraged against coffee producers. The industry calls for transparency so coffee producers don't hide what nature and climate provide. The industry calls for transparency so coffee producers don't trick baristas into competing with so-called doctored coffees. Again, this idea of doctor co- doctored coffees is really funny to me. The the image that I keep thinking of is like coffees are doping and getting an unfair advantage and that kind of undermines the winners. So I think the concern is that baristas will lose the prestige of winning if they compete with doped up coffees. Anyway, I can't comment on anything related to coffee competitions because I'm completely ignorant on the matter. And this is not an episode about economics or coffee competitions or baristas. It's more about science and history. So let's move on. My impression is that everyone else in the coffee value chain stands to gain from transparency, but coffee producers are often being left out. Consumers gain by feeling good about the coffee purchases they are making. Marketers gain by being able to position the coffee in a different market. What are farmers and producers gaining from transparency? If you're a producer and you feel you've gained something, please let me know. I would love to be wrong about this. I would be really happy if this wasn't the case. I just haven't seen it firsthand. I want to share one more quick example regarding producer transparency because this just happened to me, so it's very fresh in my mind. I had a patron ask me a question about anaerobic fermentation. This patron is about to compete in a competition and they purchased a coffee where they said the process is called nitrogen anaerobic fermentation. They asked, quote, I wasn't sure if I should use that term or perhaps try to explain the fact that the coffee cherries were put in a tank for an extended period of time in an environment filled with nitrogen and no oxygen. What are your thoughts? 
It's because I really don't hope to share wrong information or give the audience wrong slash incomplete information. Like you always say, we're lacking terminology in coffee and it really isn't easy. End quote. First, I want to say how thoughtful I find this question. So few of us in positions of influence consider the extent of our impact. This patron knows that they are about to present a coffee to a large audience and they want to take responsibility for the information they are sharing. I really admire this. It's an extra step that few in their position bother to take. In my response, I said that I love that you are thinking about how to best represent information. And I agree with you, adequate vocabulary is important in moving the industry forward. But more important than even clear information, I think, is considering the producer. I would ask the producer how they would like their coffee to be talked about. Maybe they are happy to share info and would appreciate you going deeper into the process. Or maybe they are not so comfortable sharing the details and it would be more respectful to use the name given, quote, nitrogen anaerobic fermentation, even if it is confusing to others. So my advice is to ask them how they want to be represented. Prioritizing the feelings of the coffee producer, even if it contradicts giving the most technical accurate information to the consumer. How very radical. I'm flattered that this patron thought to ask me, but I'm not the person to answer that question. I am not responsible for that coffee. I am not qualified to talk about someone else's process or how it should be represented. We care deeply about stopping bad information from spreading. We are finally taking some responsibility for our impact in the consumer space. But we often forget the simplest way to be inclusive is to let producers represent themselves and not try to constantly control the narrative. I'm also not qualified to talk about coffee competitions or their impact on the coffee industry. But I'm here to support coffee producers, and I think that with all this talk of transparency, not only are we not including them enough, but we are forgetting a fundamental truth of coffee. But before we get to that fundamental truth, let's review. Putting a fruit in a coffee tank is not enough to make it taste like that fruit. During the fermentation, the microbes need to synthesize the flavor compounds and make them small enough to get into the green coffee seed. 2-phenyl-ethyl alcohol is a higher alcohol and it is the chemical compound responsible for the aroma of rose. Researchers have found it in green and also fermented coffee. It could be attributed to the varietal or to the coffee fermentation. Yeast commonly synthesize a great variety of higher alcohols during coffee fermentation. Saccharomyces cerevisiae, Pickia, Candida, and the bacteria Lactobacillus plantarum all produce higher alcohols. So rose, jasmine, balsamic, butterscotch, and a thousand other volatiles have been identified by researchers as able to come from a coffee fermentation. But you know what they haven't found yet? Cinnamon. Researchers do not have the link between cinnamon and microbial activity. Now, it is possible that there is a microbe out there that produces the flavor cinnamon as a metabolite, but as of today, it has not been found. So if you're curious about infused coffee, cinnamon is a good clue. But almost everything else could have a biological basis in the fermentation or in the variety that was used. And to be clear, I'm not saying that it's not possible to add essential oils or otherwise perfume coffee. Of course it is. But I'm just trying to say that just because a coffee has a certain flavor, you can't assume that it was doctored because there could be a biological explanation. Unless it's cinnamon. To be clear, 
If cinnamon is added to the tank or during drying or at any point in the coffee making process, I think the term infused coffee should be applied. The point in adding cinnamon is to get cinnamon flavor. It's a one-to-one. -one, and we know that it has no microbial basis. But I do not think the term infused should apply to added fruits in the coffee tank because the direct flavor of the fruit is not incorporated into the coffee. The fruit serves as a fuel source for the microbes. You are not infusing mango flavor by adding mangoes. You are feeding the microbes. And one example that we can think about here comes from the world of wine. In France, in the growing season, it can be difficult some years and sometimes there's not enough sun and the grapes don't ripen enough and they don't get high enough sugar accumulated in, in, the, in the fruit for the grape juice to be turned into wine. And this is a hazard, right? If you don't have enough sugar, then you can't get a high enough alcohol to make your product stable. So in France, you are allowed to chaptalize the wine. That's the term, chaptalization, meaning adding sugar or a sweet concentrate to the fermentation to make up for not having enough sunshine in a given year. And this practice of chaptalization is not disclosed on the bottles. No one really says, no one mentions this on their website or on their Instagram. This is just a common practice that winemakers need to resort to to combat difficult years. In fact, in the Champagne region of France, chaptalization is an essential part of making the base wines of Champagne. And we don't think of these wines as infused or doctored or adulterated. We think of them just as Champagne. So this is essentially what coffee producers are doing when they add fruit to the coffee fermentation tanks. Just like the great winemakers of France, they are chaptalizing their fermentations. But no one in France is getting mad at the winemakers. They're just grateful to have delicious champagne. So if you don't understand how microbes make metabolites, I understand how you could be confused and think that coffees with added fruit should be called adulterated or infused. But once you have more information, I hope many of you who previously thought this was a reasonable ask now understand that it's quite silly to want coffee to be labeled this way. In fact, there are some in the specialty coffee industry with extreme opinions who think that if anything is added, it shouldn't be allowed to be called coffee, but perhaps a coffee-based beverage. I think this is nonsense and shows an ignorance of science. But there's something that concerns me more than people who ignore science. I'm concerned about the people who do know how microbes make metabolites, who are informed on the science, and who still believe that even adding a starter yeast or bacteria culture should be considered an adulteration. I recently read an article called Why Transparency Must Apply to Infused Coffees. This was uh, an article in Bean Scene magazine. And to be clear, I don't look for these articles, they usually find me, and normally I try to ignore them, but this was sent to me by a patron, Paolo Zucca. And Paolo usually asks thoughtful questions, so I decided to read it. And in it, I read something I found very disturbing. The quote is, Additions during various stages of the value chain that are not naturally from the coffee itself, including adding microorganisms that are not part of the coffee microflora, should be considered adulterated coffee and labeled accordingly, end quote. This totally floored me, because in it, they're not talking about adding essential oils or even tropical fruit. They are actually talking about microorganisms. 
And this was not said by a consumer or a barista or a roaster. This was said by Professor Dr. Chahan of the Coffee Excellence Center of the Zurich University of Applied Science. He and his colleagues are the ones doing the research to identify the volatile compounds that give coffee its flavor. He's an influential figure, and I'm disappointed to hear him take this stance so publicly. I wholeheartedly disagree with the quote in reference to coffee. On the one hand, it's a reasonable point to want something labeled that is not original to the product, like adding corn or chicory to coffee, or adding essential oils to get the coffee to have the aroma of orange or jasmine or whatever. In fact, there's a very low quality and very popular coffee brand in Colombia called Aguila Roja. If you look on the package, very tiny on the back in the ingredients list, it says that it contains protein and iron, which is an odd ingredient. Coffee doesn't normally have iron, so how did it get there? Well, it turns out that for color, the company adds blood to the coffee. I only found out from someone who knows someone who used to work there. So the company doesn't disclose the nature of the protein, but we know that blood has iron, so you can kind of put some two things together and it makes sense. So yeah, I believe some things should definitely be labeled. Some additives are unequivocally not original to coffee. But saying that if you use a starter culture of yeast or bacteria, a coffee producer should be required to label their coffee as adulterated is a bridge too far. And now we come back to the fundamental truth about coffee that we so often forget. As I covered in the terroir series of the podcast, coffee is not original to where it grows. So I think it's hypocritical and arbitrary to say that we can import plants that are not native to where they are growing, but that you can only use native microbes to ferment them. You can take a plant from Ethiopia and grow it in California or Colombia or India, and that's okay, that's true coffee. But suddenly, if you use a yeast that's not local to California or Colombia or India, you suddenly don't have pure coffee and you must label it as adulterated? Come on. If you're allowed to import the plant, why can't we also import the microbes that are needed to ferment it? As an industry, we can decide to make this arbitrary decision. We can decree that coffee plant material can be imported, but fermentation microbes cannot. That's fine if we decide that, but I hope that we have enough transparency to admit that it's a random arbitrary decision. I hope we can have enough transparency to say that we decided this instead of hiding behind the label of natural or purity or true coffee or unadulterated. Remember from those terroir episodes that when the coffee plants were taken from Ethiopia, they came naked. They didn't bring their original microbes with them. We are already fermenting with non-native microbes. Coffee is already being asked to use foreign yeast and bacteria. But the way I see it, it's like, so when it's by accident, by the colonial forces looking to expand the coffee empire, it's fine. It's pure coffee. But if coffee producers who inherited the colonial crop want to change the microbes with purpose and intention, then it's something that needs to be labeled as adulterated? It's fascinating to me how we can talk about these things, how we can talk about these topics with, with a straight face, um, because we already have adulterated coffee. When it was stolen from Ethiopia, we changed its microbiome. Our baseline is adulterated coffee. Anyway, this is a rare stance for me. You guys know that I love to be precise. You know that I wish there were more words to describe coffee. You know that I want a richer vocabulary. 
But in this case, doctored or adulterated is a label and a word that I believe we do not need to apply to coffee. It is a word that is unnecessary to the coffee vocabulary. Okay, let's leave that topic for a moment and get back to Felipe and his experiments. Because this wasn't supposed to be an episode about labels. It's an episode about producers helping producers. We are going to switch gears completely. This is a good moment to take a break if you need it and get a fresh cup of coffee or grab your notebook because we are going to talk about acids, enzymes, and the pectins and the fermentation. Okay, back to Felipe. So he added mango fruits, a high sugar source, to his coffee and had a positive result. It was complex, and my guess is because the mango provided so much sugar and other nutrients to the fermentation, it made for a really lively fermentation party. It's almost like the person who shows up at the party with a keg of beer when almost all of the guests thought they were out of alcohol. It's a catalyst for a whole... It's a catalyst for a whole lot of other stuff to happen. Sometimes the after party is better than the party. So next, in his infinite curiosity... Felipe naturally thought, okay, I've added mango, a fruit with a lot of sugar, so what happens if I do the opposite? What happens if I add a fruit with low sugar and high acid? What is the opposite of mango? Probably a lemon. He wondered, if I add citrus, can I get better acidity in my coffee? So Felipe added a lot of citrus to the fermentation, and during the Discord hangout, he asked me what I thought happened. I've never done this experiment. As you guys know, I don't have anything against adding fruit to a coffee tank, I just don't happen to do it myself. But even though it's something that I've never done, I was able to tell Felipe exactly what happened because of fundamentals. Felipe was the one who added citrus to his coffee. He fermented it, he dried it, and cupped it. I've never done any of those things. But when he asked me what I thought happened in an experiment that I've never done or tasted, I didn't even have to think about it. I said, hmm, probably nothing. And then he looked at me like I had performed a magic trick or read his mind. And then with a little disappointment in his voice, he said, yeah, it tasted like a normal washed coffee. Meaning that for all that effort and expectation and days of fermentation, nothing happened. It didn't taste like there was a lot of effort or difference in the process, which was the opposite of the mango fermentation and the kombucha fermentation. So why did nothing happen? Or rather, What happened that made it seem like nothing happened? First, we already know that citrus flavors were not going to get absorbed into the coffee seeds. It doesn't work like that. So there was never going to be a lemony flavor to the coffee. But his goal was not citrus flavor. He wasn't striving for a particular flavor. His goal was to see if he could increase the acidity of his coffee. So by adding the citrus, what he essentially did was dramatically lower the pH. And in this, he was incredibly successful. When you first start a coffee fermentation, they are usually the pH of the water that you use. Even if you don't do a submerged fermentation, it usually takes a lot of water to pulp the coffee and to move it from one end of the mill to the other. Water is usually around pH 7, but the pulped coffee is a little bit acidic, so the fermentation usually starts around pH 6 or maybe even like 5.5. So mangoes have a pH of 5.8 to about pH 6. So adding mango to the coffee tank shouldn't change the starting pH. However, the pH of lemon is 2. Even oranges that are sweeter than lemons still have a pH of around 3 or 4. 
Remember, the pH is logarithmic, so pH 2 is 10 times more acidic than pH 3. And if you're going from pH 4 to 2, while it's 2 units, it's actually 10 times 10. It's actually 100 times more acidic. So if the mango fermentation started at pH 5.5 and the citrus starts at 2.5, that's not a difference of 3 units, that's a difference of 1,000. The microbes are in an environment that's 1,000 times more acidic. Oftentimes, we think we are making a little change, like a few degrees change in temperature or one or two pH units. But to the microbes, it can be a tenfold change or a hundredfold change or a thousandfold change. This is why so often coffee producers feel frustrated and they tell me, I did the same thing, but it came out different. And this is because to our human senses, it does feel like we did the same thing. But on the microbe level, you could have changed something very, very dramatically. To us, what seems like dropping a tiny pebble to a microbe can be like dropping a planet. So remember, pH and acid strength is opposite, meaning the lower pH value, the higher and stronger the acid content. So Felipe added citrus not to get the flavor of citrus, but to lower the pH of the fermentation. This is very smart, and it is also a perfectly common way to preserve food. Check the label of many packaged foods and citric acid is often added as a preservative. Lower pH food is a lot more stable and has a longer shelf life. And of course, Felipe is unlikely to have citric acid powder like most food manufacturers, but he does have a farm and he has access to citric fruit. So he adds citrus to the tank. Another quick wine aside, almost all commercial wine has an acid adjustment. We add acid to grape juice to bring the pH down and stabilize the wine for long-term storage. If you want to keep a wine for 5 or 10 or 20 or 40 years, you want it to be stable and you adjust the pH by adding tartaric acid. This is incredibly common. Just like chaptalization, the practice of adding sugar, wineries are not required to put this anywhere on the label. It's just considered good practices, like sanitizing and washing your tanks. You don't need to tell anyone about it, it's just part of making a good and stable product. Once again, Felipe is acting like every other winemaker in France who adds sugar to the fermentation, or every other winemaker in California who adds acid to the fermentation. There is not a call for transparency from winemakers for these simple additions because they are trusted to know how to make their own product, and we are grateful to be able to drink French and California wines. Anyway. The first thing is that starting with a very low pH is a good way to control the fermentation. So when producers say they control pH because they have a pH meter and they measure the pH, that's not controlling, that's monitoring the fermentation. Felipe, on the other hand, had a target pH in mind. He added citrus, lowered the pH to 3.5, and then started the coffee fermentation. Now that is control. If you'll remember from episode 36, Lactic Acid 101, Controlling the fermentation is like having security at your party. Only the invited microbes are allowed to enter. Lowering the pH means that you are setting the criteria for who your VIPs will be that you allow into the party. This is the opposite of the strategy to invite microbes, the if you build it, they will come strategy. Because pH that is very low is a high bar. It's a demanding criteria. It's like throwing a party and saying that the only people that are allowed to come are people who own private islands. 
In the whole population of the world, a very small percentage own private islands. And of the ones that do, it's unlikely that they'll want to come to your house party. But why is low pH such a barrier? Well, it's because it's a very difficult environment to grow in. Like, imagine the thermophilic bacteria that live in the boiling water of hot springs, or the cyanobacteria that live on glaciers, or remember the halo-tolerant bacteria that we talked about in the kombucha episode. High salt, or high acid, or high heat, or very cold temperatures, all of these are extreme environments, and while you still have some crazy microbes that call these places home, by creating those environments, you are severely decreasing the population. And severely decreasing the population on purpose is also a form of controlling your fermentation and getting reproducible results. And you might be confused because many coffee fermentations can have an ending pH of 3.5. And it's true. It's not an outrageous pH value. It's a very normal pH value in almost all coffee fermentations. But, and this is a really big but, it's an outrageous pH value to start with. Many microbes, as they grow and divide, they begin to adapt to their environment. Each generation is a little bit stronger as they proceed with the fermentation. And as they're, you know, growing and dividing and having new generations, they're changing their environment. And then they're also making the environment more acidic. And as is the case with yeast, they are producing more alcohol. So the longer the fermentation is allowed to progress, the more difficult the environment becomes for the microbes. So in a way, they're kind of poisoning themselves. But again, they have defenses. For example, most Saccharomyces cerevisiae can tolerate alcohol up to 16 to 17%. That's all the poison they can handle. I think the highest alcohol content that can be produced through fermentation is maybe around 18%. And then to get an alcohol level any higher than that, you must distill and concentrate the alcohol. So there is definitely a limit to, to bacteria and yeast. And while microbes can become more resistant to their environment, remember as they're um, having more generations and dividing and growing, then each subsequent generation is just a little bit more tolerant of the alcohol, a little bit more tolerant of the acid. Um, Even though they can do this and adapt to their environment, they still need time for this to develop. So a Saccharomyces cerevisiae needs to start with zero alcohol and slowly build up the tolerance over many generations, and then they'll get stronger and slowly the alcohol will build up to 16% and they'll be able to finish their fermentation, but that can take several weeks. But if you rehydrate brand new baby Saccharomyces and then put them in a tank with 16% alcohol, they will immediately die. They say that if you put a frog in cold water and slowly turn up the temperature, it will acclimate to the heat and stay in the pot and eventually boil alive. But if you try to put a frog in boiling water, it will do its best to jump out. It's a gross image, but it's essentially what's happening to the microbes in the citrus acidified fermentation. They didn't have time to acclimate, and many cannot live and grow in that environment, so their options are to go dormant, or die immediately, or maybe they never even get invited to the party. And as we've said, there are some microbes who thrive in extreme conditions, so it's not like you're sanitizing and killing everything and have no fermentation. It's just that there are fewer of these extreme microbes, so you'll have less diversity. And actually, that can sound like a bad thing, but for consistent coffee fermentations, less diversity is the best that you can hope for. 
The lack of microbe diversity means that you can have more predictable results and then you can reproduce those results and then you can scale those results and then you can reach the escape velocity of dealing in nano and micro lots and get to tons and containers of good consistent coffee. I mentioned the low pH, meaning high acid, made a very extreme environment and that very few microbes can survive. So Felipe basically rented like a big hall, decorated it with balloons, bought a bunch of food, got an expensive sound system to play dance music, and by adding the citrus, it was like putting a bouncer at the door who told everyone to F off and go home. No one was allowed to come in. It was an empty party. Remember previously, Felipe did a kombucha fermentation. After that fermentation, when he cupped the coffee, he had an explosion of flavors in the coffee. First, there was the micro party in the fermentation tank, and then there was a flavor party in his mouth. In the citrus process, he was expecting something like what happened that other time. But when he dried the coffee and cupped it, it tasted like no one had been at the party. I don't remember exactly how long the citrus fermentation was, but I know that it was several days. And this brings us to yet another mystery. In his mind, he threw a party for many days, but it didn't taste like it. Fermenting coffee for several days usually has some dramatic effect on flavor, and yet this didn't. This gives us a clue that little to no fermentation activity happened because we don't have the proof of fermentation. The flavor is a proof that something happened. But this leads to a second mystery. If you listen to the podcast, you know that one of the problems we've had in communication is that the traditional role and the way that we talk about fermentation was about removing the mucilage and wash coffee, not about flavor development and adding value. So the fermentation step is still key in removing mucilage, but Felipe didn't have any trouble removing the mucilage and drying his coffee. If we know there was little or no fermentation because there was no proof of flavor, but we also know that the fermentation is necessary to remove the mucilage, and we do have proof that all of the mucilage was removed, does that mean there was a fermentation? Here we have proof of opposite things. There could not have been a fermentation because there is no flavor, and there must have been a fermentation because all of the mucilage is gone. There is a series on YouTube that I like to watch sometimes from Wired. It's a complicated topic explained at multiple levels. So some of the topics include cryptocurrency or genetic modification or music theory. Um, but one of my favorites is a video about physics. In this video, astrophysicist Jen 11 PhD explains gravity at different difficulty levels. She talks about gravity to a kid, then a high school student, then a college grad, and then an expert. It's the same concept, but with different levels of complexity, the meaning changes. If you're a kid, gravity is about an apple falling to the ground. You throw something up in the air, and gravity means that it falls back down again. For a high school student, gravity is about space and time being relative, but the speed of light is a constant. For a college student, space is curved and gravity is a field that permeates space, and falling is the same as floating. What you learned as a kid that what goes up must come down is no longer true. What goes up, if it is going up fast enough, can reach escape velocity and never come down again. Even though they say opposite things, they are both true at different levels of understanding. And then the video progresses, and then she gets to talk to a grad student, a PhD in physics. And for a grad student, gravity is about exploding stars and black holes where light goes in and nothing escapes. 
We can use a similar framework to think about fermentation. The kid level is the understanding that the fermentation step takes the mucilage off. Boom, move on with your day, you get it. But then you go to high school and learn that it's not a mechanical process, but a biological process of microbes like yeast and bacteria consuming the available sugars and transforming them into flavor precursors. I hope this is where most of us are that listen to this podcast. You've moved from the level of thinking that fermentation is mechanical to thinking that it's biological. This is true and accurate, but it leads us to making the mistake of thinking we found a contradiction in the citrus fermentation. If your understanding of fermentation is that sugar is broken down by microbes and that is what liberates the seed, and the sugar is consumed and transformed in flavor precursors, then how can you have a coffee that tastes like no fermentation but acts like there was a fermentation because all of the mucilage came off? Well, my sweet coffee nerds, it is time to up-level our understanding of fermentation one more time. Okay. The problem in that previous way of thinking is focusing on the sugar in the mucilage and forgetting about enzymes and acid produced by fermentation. I haven't talked about enzyme activity much in the podcast yet, but it's an important part of the conversation, especially when we get to the koji fermentations, which is coming at some point, I promise. But for today, I will just tell you that historically, the prevailing theory of how mucilage physically came off of the seed was through enzymatic activity. This was back in the phase where the fermentation was seen as mechanical. Enzymes are not alive like yeast and bacteria, and so it fits with the mechanical model. Enzymes are proteins that act as biological catalysts. As many of you know, coffee mucilage is sticky. The stickiness is less due to high sugar and more due to pectin. Coffee mucilage has a lot of pectin, like jelly. So enzymes are catalysts, and catalysts accelerate chemical reactions. So enzymes accelerate the chemical reaction that causes the pectin to fall off the seed by breaking the bonds of the pectin in the mucilage. This causes the mucilage to dissolve and liberate the coffee seed. So you can... Think of this like, uh, imagine the coffee seed is surrounded by this like metal cage of wire, and this metal cage is a little bit difficult to, to penetrate. Very few things can get through because the holes are uh, very small. So what the enzymes do is they come and break, they physically break the bonds. So you can think of them like scissors cutting through the metal. And you just have to cut it in a few places, and then the metal cage can fall off. This cage of pectin is also providing structure and kind of holding and hiding the sugars from the yeast and bacteria. So the yeast and bacteria, when they are first introduced to the coffee, don't have all of that sugar necessarily uh, available or accessible. So in order for the yeast and bacteria to access the sugar, they need to break down the pectin structure too, and so they also release enzymes to help them access the sugars. And in the process, the side effect is that the pectin falls off of the seed and it's easier to wash and dry and prepare for roasting. So like the, the thing that we're looking for, a clean coffee seed, is just a side effect of what the yeast and bacteria do while they're trying to um, eat their sugar. So for them to have that sugar available, they must break that pectin cage and everybody wins. <laughs> it's a win-win situation. They get access to the sugar and we have access to a, a clean coffee seed. So the same way that you can buy a packet of yeast, you can buy a packet of enzymes. It's simple to add the powder to your coffee fermentation tank to remove the mucilage and wash your coffee very quickly. Remember, enzymes accelerate reactions. 
So a yeast fermentation can remove your mucilage in maybe 12 to 24 hours. And if it's really cold, maybe it can take 48 hours. But if you add straight up enzymes to your tank, you can get the mucilage off in, I don't know, like an hour or less, depending on how much enzyme you use. So you can remove the mucilage and never have a fermentation at all. You can use these biological proteins to essentially perform a mechanical demucilagination. But instead of using a hydraulic machine like an ecopulper, you are using non-living proteins. So while yeast and bacteria in the course of their fermentation produce enzymes, you can also add enzymes in the absence of yeast and bacteria. So you can enzymes can be present as part of your kind of natural traditional fermentation and you can add them um, exogenously and just add them to the tank and have no fermentation uh, no fermentation necessary at all. So this is where enzymes can get a little bit tricky because if you have yeast and bacteria, um, if you have that kind of fermentation and the enzymes are definitely helping to remove the mucilage and that's in that sense, the enzymes are acting as part of a biological process. But if you just open a packet, dump them in the tank, then the enzymes are acting as part of a mechanical process, even though they can be, uh, even though they are biological in origin. Okay. So all of this is true but it needs a bit of an update. This model of thinking of fermentation held that enzymes were the most important part in breaking down pectin to clean the seed. But what scientists have found is that acid plays a potentially more important role in the biological removal of mucilage. So we're only talking about the biological sense. We're going to put aside the scenario where you add a bag of powdered enzymes to the coffee tanks. That is a whole separate thing. We're only talking about the biological part. So we're going to focus on the biological scenario of yeast and bacteria and enzymes and the enzymes that they naturally produce. In that scenario, researchers have found that acid and low pH plays a more important role in dissolving pectin and removing the mucilage. The high acid is key in breaking the pectin bonds, not just enzymes. So for example, we can have a coffee fermentation that is active and many days old, but if the pH is still between 4.6 or 5, a good majority of the mucilage is still attached to the seed and it's not ready to wash, even if it's been fermenting for several days, meaning that there's a lot of enzymes produced. So if the pH hasn't dropped, the mucilage will still surround the seed. So lowering our pH is critical to having a clean coffee seed. So back to Felipe and the citrus fermentation. Incidentally, Citrus fruits are some of the fruits with the highest pectin concentration. This is why they make orange marmalade. The oranges have such high pectin, you usually don't need to add additional pectin to turn them into a jelly. So when Felipe added lemons, he was adding a lot more pectin and dramatically lowering the pH. So the extra pectin could be seen as a step backwards, right? We want to dissolve the pectin, not add more, but the acid drop is so strong that it cancels out the extra pectin. So what Felipe did by starting with a low pH of 3.5 is that he controlled his fermentation very strongly. He disinvited everyone to the party so that no fermentation happened, but he dissolved the mucilage so that the coffee was clean and ready to wash. In terms of complex flavor development and adding value, this fermentation was a failure. But it's a success if you have different goals. For example, on the Discord call, we also had Paula, who was a young coffee producer in training, taking over her grandfather's farm in Oaxaca. She has limited resources and is getting conflicting advice about how to move forward, 
Some tell her to ferment her coffee for 100 hours with a starter, and others are advising her to skip the fermentation completely and buy an eco-pulper. Paula is getting her bearings, and she needs to have the confidence that she can produce clean, consistent coffee before she can scale up her production. An eco-pulper is a great way to get consistency, and so is using a starter. An eco-pulper can cost several thousand dollars and also requires maintenance. Yeast starters are relatively cheap to maintain, but they can be expensive if you need to import from another country. And I know it can be daunting to know where to start and which one to pick and how to take care of it, so it's also a, a high time investment to get started. So Paula is facing two less than ideal choices because her main priority is consistency. She can use a large portion of her budget on a machine or a large portion of her available mental space and lose herself in microbial starters. And what we discovered on that Discord call is that there is a third way. Basically, what Felipe did was create an alternative to an eco-pulper for the cost of some lemons. For Paula, and producers like her, this can be a good option. An eco-pulper skips the fermentation, which, yes, as you know from this podcast, can improve the quality of your coffee, but it also provides a lot of variability and there's a lot of value in having stable coffee that is maybe not so exotic in flavor, but that is reproducible and scalable. Also, one of my hesitations about eco-pulpers is that they have to use strong water pressure and friction to physically remove the mucilage. And depending on the size of your machine and calibration, this can really beat up and damage the seed. This physical manhandling will not be obvious immediately, but it can show up if you need to store your coffee for more than six months or a year. So for example, if a coffee is only, I don't know, six or eight months old, it could taste like a coffee that's over a year old. Again, if you sell and roast your coffee in less than a year, you may never notice this issue. But if you know that your coffee needs to have a long shelf life, this type of rough treatment is working against you. So in a sense, the citrus fermentation is also better because it removes the mucilage very gently. You don't need to manhandle the coffee through a high-pressure washing machine. And because you don't need a machine, you don't even need electricity. And you're never going to need to buy spare parts unless, you know, just buy more lemons. So if you're thinking of spending thousands of dollars purchasing an eco-pulper because you need to produce consistent coffee that is free of defects, and maybe you don't have the labor for long fermentations, you might first try an acidified method to remove mucilage quickly and skip fermenting. If you're Felipe, trying to give your Chinese clients the next new hotness in coffee fermentation, the citrus fermentation will not do. But if you're Paula, trying to make consistent coffee and trying to decide if buying an eco-pulper is in your budget, citrus fermentation could be your new best friend. For me, there are two lessons here. One, Felipe is a curious guy. He enjoys experimenting. He has the resources to do this, and it was a positive experience for him, even though he didn't achieve what he was hoping for. But if you're the type of producer who has limited funds to invest, who has limited time or limited staff, or doesn't particularly enjoy experimenting, then knowing the fundamentals can save you time by knowing what experiments to skip and which to try first. Knowing fundamentals can save you time because you don't need to do all of the experiments. You can stand on the shoulders of the people who came before you. This reminds me of a saying, a fool never learns. A smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Or another saying that could apply, one man's trash is another's treasure. 
Paula can take Felipe's discarded experiment from his trash pile, polish it, and turn it into her star process. And the second lesson is that if you're not a patron, you're really missing out on some cool discussions like these during our Discord sessions. And if you're like, oh god, I have to sign up for another thing, I totally hear you. I don't like signing up for stuff either, and making a login, and remembering a password. And on top of that, I really try to stay away from most social platforms. But Discord has really impressed me with the power to connect listeners of the show. Paula, a small producer in Mexico, was able to potentially save her money and not buy an eco-pulper because she listened to what Felipe and Colombia tried. To me, this is one of the most exciting parts of the evolution of this podcast. Neither Felipe nor Paula learned this from me. They learned from each other. I enjoy sharing what I know with all of you. But I believe there is a huge untapped resource of producers learning from each other, and this is my hope for the Patreon members and the Discord channels. Well, here we are, the end of another episode. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks to the patrons who make this show possible, and thanks to my editor and partner Nick for making this a much smoother podcast than it would be without him. Did you like this episode? If so, join us for more on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. It's kind of like having a cup of coffee with me. It's where I can interact with listeners, get your feedback, and suggestion for future episodes. And the next episode is going to be a listener Q&A, so that's going to be episode 40. I will be answering patron questions on any topic, not just coffee fermentation. So whatever you guys are curious about, you can feel free to ask me. You can ask me about travel, uh, living in Colombia, what it's like to have six dogs, my favorite foods, anything. And if you can't join Patreon yet, I would love it if you could share the podcast with a friend. Lastly, uh, check out the show notes for resources, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. <laughs>